0: Before we begin the podcast, I have a very important announcement. Please listen carefully. Our organization, Torch, the Torch Center, we're a nonprofit. That means that the only way we can support our incredible staff of rabbis and rebbits and our support staff and pay rent at the glorious Torch Center and to do all the wonderful work of Torch, the only way we do that is via the generosity of our friends and supporters. The only way we can pay for our expenses The only way is by fundraising. We need to fundraise. We have no other choice. But we have a different fundraising philosophy. We don't want to fundraise all the time. We don't want to always be asking for money. It's too distracting. It's not so comfortable. It's really not what we're here to do. This is not why we got into this field. But we need to fundraise. There's no other choice. And our philosophy has been that we want to compress an entire year's worth of fundraising into about a week or so. One campaign that we try to raise the bulk of our annual operating expenses, and that week is right now. So today, I'm asking you for your friendship, for your support. I'm asking you to visit givetorch.org and make a donation to Torch. This is a matching fundraiser. Every donation will be doubled by our incredible cadre of mattress. So give what you can give, please. And see your donation be amplified and help make our campaign a success. If everyone who is listening right now gives what they can give, if you give what you can give at givetorch.org, the campaign will be a success. And the light of torch can be bright for another year. And you know, you know this is a good idea. You appreciate what we do. You enjoy our podcasts. You know what we do. You enjoy what we do. You find our podcasts to be interesting, to be educational, to be valuable, to be compelling. Today, I need your support to keep it going. In the description of the podcast, you'll find the link, givetorch.org. Please chip in and make the campaign a success. And I have to tell you, thank God, my wife and I are the proud parents of seven children. And this is my only job. Without your support, I wouldn't be able to make these podcasts. The Torch Center would close down. We'd all have to find real jobs. And wouldn't that be a shame? But thank God, we have incredible supporters, incredible donors, incredible friends and partners. And Torch is able to teach and spread Torah in a never-before Seen kind of way and on a scale that we would only dream about years ago. And I don't like to typically tout our numbers and how big of an impact we're having. But in this context, I think it's important. I've been recording and releasing Torah podcasts for more than a decade now, way before it was cool. This most recent month, the month of January, it set the record for the most downloads of any month that I've been in business for. About 80,000 downloads of Torah podcasts in one month. There's a new record in January, and it beat the record set in December, which beat the record that was set in November. So this is huge, and it's still growing, and it's something really special. And all of it is thanks to our incredible supporters who support our work and support Torch and support the Torch Center and all the incredible podcasts, and they visit givetorch.org and support. Every donor is a partner. If you give at givetorch.org, you're a partner in this incredible enterprise of Torah. Now, if you choose to not support, you are not a partner. And wouldn't that be a shame? As they just tell us, Anyone who contributes towards a mitzvah, they get the merit of that mitzvah. So anyone who goes right now to givetorch.org and makes a donation and gives what they can give, and every donation, of course, is doubled, you get a portion in the incredible merit of 80,000 monthly downloads of Torah podcasts. This is the easiest business decision in history. So go to givetorch.org. And give what you can give. And please, God, will raise the torch of Torah. will keep the flame of torch lit to spread the light of Torah the world over. Whatever merit we get from all the unprecedented impact that our organization is having, all the incredible Torah that's being spread, that merit is divided. It goes to us, the team at Torch, and it goes to our partners who support our work. Now, you know, if you follow what we do here, we work really hard the whole year to connect Jews and Judaism, to spread Torah, to impact people around the world. And you know that we work really hard. We work tirelessly. That's our part of the deal. But now I need you to do your part as well. So please pause the podcast and visit givetorch.org. You can find the link in the description of the podcast. And give what you can, give what you can to support Torch and to support the incredible Torch podcasts. This is an online fundraiser. It's a matching fundraiser. Every donation will be doubled in the description of the podcast. There's a link. So I'm asking you please to pause the podcast and visit givetorch.org and give what you can give and support our organization and support the podcasts. And by doing that, you'll make me happy. You'll make me glad. You'll put a smile on my face. Don't make me sad. I'll be sad if I don't have your support. I'm counting on you. Please don't let me down. Please visit givetorch.org and pitch in. Give what you can give. You will not regret it. I guarantee that. If you enjoy what we do, if you enjoy our podcasts, you will enjoy it even more. Once you become a partner, and once you give what you can give at givetorch.org and support us, every donation is doubled. This is a once-a-year thing. It's a total no-brainer. Givetorch.org. This is very important. And it's very important to me to have your support. I want 100 percent participation. I think of the podcasts as this big, distributed family. And I need my family members to support. I want everyone on board. Give what you can give and support our work. If you've never given in the past, now's the time to get started. GiveTorch.org. Give what you can. If you have given in the past, thank you so much for that. You are responsible for all the work that we did over here. And today, I'm asking you again for your support. And if you gave in the past, give more, push yourself a little bit more, you will not regret it. I've never had, over the course of my tenure here, there was never a single donor who regretted their donations. Unbelievable. Partner with me. Give what you can give. Support Torch in 2023. Support Spreading Torah and our rich Jewish heritage throughout the world. Support the Parsha Podcast, the Jewish History Podcast, the Torah 101 Podcast, This Jewish Life, the Mitzvah Podcast, the Ethics Podcast, all the other incredible podcasts from Torch. Support our shul, our next-gen community, Torchwood. Support the incredible Torch Center. Support all the fantastic work of Torch. I know it's hard. I know you're probably clicking, fast fast forward, fast forward. Fast forward. When is this appeal going to end? It's once a year. Now's the time. GiveTorch.org. It's worth it. Push yourself. Give what you can give. Visit GiveTorch.org and you will be happy. You can make a donation via PayPal. You want to send in a check. You want to do payments. You can always email me, RabbiWalbidjim.com. I'll make it easy for you. If I have your phone number, I will likely be giving you a call this week. So be on the lookout for that. Our philosophy is to go really hard once a year and then not to bother you until next year. So you please forgive me if I pester you. And if you get a call from me, please forgive me if I'm interrupting you. We do this once a year. That's it. I'll bother you once and not again for a year. And again, the website is givetorch.org. You could choose which podcast is your favorite, which one you want to support, which Torch team to support, All that at GiveTorch.org. The link is in the description. Every donation is doubled. Let us get together and support this amazing institution and raise the torch for another incredible year. Thank you so much. I am eternally grateful for all your support and your friendship. Thank you for listening. Please, God, and I would love your prayers for this as well. Please, God, the campaign will be a smashing success. And Torch will have another fabulous year. And Torch will have another fabulous year. And we'll have our, our next conversation about this in about a year from now. But right now, visit givetorch.org. What's the website? Give GiveTorch, org. Every donation's doubled. Thank you so much for listening. And now, to the podcast. As always, my email address is rabbiwalbe.org. At gmail.com. We are very fortunate that we have the Almighty's Torah. The more you study it, the more exposure that you have to it, the more you realize how lucky we are that we have this incredible gift from the Almighty. This gift that's there to elevate us, to make us more refined, to make us more sensitive, to make us more angelic, to connect us with our soul, to connect us with our essence, to give us a plan, to give us a dream of achieving eternity in Oum Abba. But I noticed something this past week, which was so profound and so counterintuitive, really, such a lesson of how Torah is supposed to mold us and influence us and change us and, and, and reshape the way we see the world. It was just so fascinating, and I figured I have to share it with y'all. The verse tells us: Noam. The ways of the Torah are the ways of pleasantness. The Torah is pleasant. You read the Torah, there's a lot of laws, a lot of details. But if you were to distill it down to what it's, what the emotion of Torah is, Derocha, Derochei, Noam, its ways are pleasant. And I saw an example. Uh We're reading now, of course, the book of Exodus. A very dramatic story. The Jewish people are in Egypt and they end up there in a very circuitous way. Joseph goes initially and then there's the the famine and then... The Jewish people somehow end up there in this very unusual turn of events. And then they settle down there and they proliferate there. Eventually, they're enslaved there. And things get really bad and, and they, they grow. They they proliferate very dramatically, but they're suffering. And we read about Moshe and he grows up in this very unusual arrangement. He is the son of the most prestigious Of the Jews, Amram, Amram and Yocheved, he's a grandson of Levi, the son of Jacob. But he somehow grows up in the house of Pharaoh as a prince. And then when he comes of age, he goes out to inspect with his brethren. He has some sort of affinity towards the small people, towards the slaves, towards his real biological brothers. And he goes the first day, and he sees an Egyptian man striking, a Hebrew man of his fellow, and he intervenes, and he defends the defenseless, and he kills the Egyptian, he buries him in the sand. And the next day he goes out and sees two Jews, two Hebrews fighting, two Israelites fighting, and again he intervenes, and they say, well, why is this your business? Are you going to kill us like you killed the guy yesterday? And Moshe gets arrested, and he has to flee, ends up in Midian, and he's there for maybe 60 years. And the Jews forget all about Moshe, of course. He's gone 60 years. Who remembers? And he has this experience by the the burning bush, and the Almighty commissions him to go save the Jewish people, and he, of course, launches all sorts of objections, but eventually he goes. And the first attempt is a total failure. And then six months later, the Almighty says, okay, now it's time to go back again, his first attempt did not result in the Jews being saved, instead, their conditions worsened. The slavery intensified. The torture, the oppression was magnified, was amplified, exacerbated. And now Moshe sent again, and the people are so consumed with work they can't even listen to him. They can't even hear him. They have such shortness of breath. But what happens? Moshe does miracles and uh, a series of plagues happen and Pharaoh gets progressively humbled and the Jewish people are freed from their bondage and they get to witness all these miracles, these, mi- these miracles that really encapsulate all aspects, all facets of existence. And then with this dramatic crescendo, they leave at the stroke of midnight. All the Egyptian firstborns, firstborn die. And there's no house that is free of any dead. And they leave. And they travel. They're out. They're free. It's unbelievable. But seven days later, Pharaoh chases down in in hot pursuit. And the nation is sure that this is it. Curtains for the Jewish people. It's over. And they tell Moshe, Moshe, why did you take us out of Egypt? Were there insufficient graves in Egypt? You have to bring us here to die? Look at Egypt on the map. You know, if you look at Google Maps of Egypt, it's one little strip of green following the Nile River. And then there's tons of room to bury as many Jews as you want. You brought us here. We had to have this exultant exodus and this feeling that we're we're free only to have the Egyptians hunt us down. And now we're going to die over here? People are freaking out. And what's Moshe doing? Moshe's praying. And God says to Moshe, why are you praying? Why are you praying? Speak to the people and it's time to go. Where to go? Your backs are up against the water. And you're surrounded by this very well-armed and experienced army where to go? Go into the water. And we know the story. They go into the water, and the waters is split, and one of the most dramatic events in all of human history happen. There are walls of water on either side. The Egyptians follow. They are washed away, and the nation forever, says goodbye, departs from their Egyptian overlords. And then they sing. They launch into spontaneous song, and the story continues. But it's an incredible thing. Jewish people are in a very precarious predicament. They're surrounded by an army, armed to the teeth, 600 chariots. Bats are up against the water. And the people, what do they say? The people say, you brought us here to die? Are there insufficient graves in Egypt? Why do we have to come all the way here to die? It's much more convenient to just die there. That's their perspective. Moshe doesn't really know what to do. He's he's praying. And God says, "We'll go into the water." But there's one thing that no one utters, not the people, not Moshe, and not God. It's kind of uh conspicuously absent from the whole story. And that is there's another option. Not to just complain. Not to pray, not, not to go into the water. There is a fourth option. And that is to fight. And no one floats that idea. Incredible thing. The Jewish people, the verse tells us, Vachamushim Alu B'nai Israel Maris Misraim. They ascended from the land of Egypt, Chamushim. What does Chamushim mean? Rashi offers two interpretations. Either only a fifth of them emerged, four fifths perished. Alternatively, Chamushim means armed, they had weapons. Now we know after the splitting of the sea, and the nation went to Mara, and they went to a place called Rafidim, and they had a war a war with Amalek. A Malek attacks them in Rafidim. Moshe goes on top of the mountain with Aaron on one side and Hur on the other side. He lifts his hands. And then Joshua and his selected men are fighting the physical battle down below. Well, what are they fighting with? You would imagine that those weapons that they took out of Egypt, that's what they're fighting with. So they're armed. They have weapons. And they, in fact, deploy those weapons against a Malek. So they're surrounded, the Egyptians, and the Jews are saying, oh, he brought us here to die. There was insufficient graves in Egypt. And Moshe is praying. He doesn't seem to know what to do. And God says, well, go into the water. Why does no one entertain to use the weapons? What an interesting question. Now, this is not my question. This question is posed by the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra, one of the great medieval commentators on the Torah, he asked this question, wait a minute, there are 600,000 military age males, you would imagine an equivalent amount of females, some seniors, some older people, some kids, but even if you just deal with the military age male from the age of, of 20 to 60, that's a lot of potential soldiers, and they have weapons. And even if maybe they're not as well-trained, they don't have so much experience beneath their belt, that's a lot of force to push up against 600 chariots. Why don't they ever consider that? That's his question. And his answer, very interesting, his his answer is that... Jewish people in Egypt, yeah, just a year ago, they were slaves. And they didn't have the, the aggression and the training and, and the, the moxie to borrow a word from Paul's and Carol. They didn't have that experience, that, that, that confidence that you need to wage war. Especially to go up against their erstwhile masters. And that's why, says the Ibn Ezra, they didn't wage war. And even at the end of the parasha, when they do in fact engage in war against Amalek, the only reason why they're able to succeed is because Moshe's brained. But if you just zero out everything, it's just a question of military might, the Jews have no chance. These aren't soldiers. These aren't hardened soldiers. To be a soldier, you have to have a certain confidence. You have to have a certain training. These are former slaves. They're not going to turn against their erstwhile masters. And then he says something again along these lines. The Almighty did a great service for the Jewish people. The Jews were slated to go straight into Israel, to Canaan. But we know what happened. They ended up remaining in the wilderness for 40 years. And over the course of those 40 years, the generations turned over. The old generation passed, and the new generation was born. And none of the people who left Egypt, who were slaves, entered Canaan, crossed over, crossed over the Jordan. And this was a great service of the Almighty, because those people who were slaves in Egypt, they could never amount to great soldiers. They would never be great soldiers because they had a slave mentality. They didn't have that that confidence that you need to be able to successfully engage in combat. Their children, they were never slaves. They're going to be good warriors. And that is the reason why, says the Ibn Ezra, these people, they just weren't, they, they didn't have what it takes to fight. To fight, you need to have confidence. If you have a, a slave mentality, if you're weak and feeble and uncertain about what to do, then you're not going to be a good warrior. And he even reminds us of what he said in the beginning of Exodus. In the beginning of Exodus, the Ezra points out that there's a reason why the Almighty manipulated it, that Moshe was a prince. Why did the Almighty do that? That Moshe, the Savior of the Jewish people, ends up as a prince for Pharaoh, What's the reason why that had to happen? And he says, because if, had he grown up as a slave, he would never have the confidence to walk into Pharaoh and to make demands. It had to be that he grew up in this very unusual environment for an Israelite at the time. So he can have confidence and he can have moxie and be, and be bold and be daring. Jews, the rest of the Jews, the rank and file, they were feeble. They were incapable. They were much weaker, much more docile, and that's why they're not going to engage in war against their masters. That is the Ibn Ezra. I saw another answer, which is going to launch us into our concept, the the larger, more global concept that I want to convey today. This is found in a fascinating piece in the Kasav Sofer, who is the son of the Hassam Sofer. And he gives a different answer to this question. And the question is, why does no one consider to wage war to fight with the weapons against the Egyptians? And the answer that that the Saf gives is a very counterintuitive one. And when we read the answer, we discover the answer, it's not going to really resonate initially. But if you think about it, there's a very deep and profound ethical lesson that we can derive from it. He quotes the verse in Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 23. The verse says that we are not allowed to disdain or hate or abhor an Egyptian. There is a prohibition for us to discriminate against Egyptians. Now, the Egyptians, they, they are our enemies. They held us hostage. They enslaved us. We cannot discriminate against them. Why, says the verse, because you were a foreigner in his land. The Jews spent some time in Egypt, and as a result of that, were not allowed to mistreat the Egyptian, or to hate them, or to abhor them, or to disdain them. And Rashi asks the question, we were in their land against our will. We were in their land, and we were grossly mistreated. And what did they do to the Jewish babies? They took the Jewish babies, and they threw them into the water, into the Nile. And we read, in Exodus, especially with Rashi's commentary, just the terrible, egregious, unconscionable things that the Egyptians did to their Jewish slaves. The Midrash tells us that when Pharaoh was ill, he would slaughter hundreds of Jewish babies every single day to bathe in their blood. This is demented stuff, genocidal stuff. And when a Jew would not fulfill their daily quota of bricks to build, they'd take a Jewish baby and supplant it for a brick. This is demonic behavior by the Egyptians. Nevertheless, we were recipients of their hospitality. When we needed something, we were hungry, there was a famine, where did we go? We went to Egypt and we found some degree of refuge there. We must never forget that. And we must have a sense of gratitude to who? To the Egyptians. He quotes the Talmud. The Talmud says, if you drink water from a well, you must never cast a stone into said well. And therefore, the Jewish people, we must have gratitude to the Egyptians. We must appreciate their hospitality. When we were in dire straits, they accepted us. They welcomed us. Now, of course, later on, they mistreated us very severely. But they welcomed us. And therefore, we were were morally, from the Torah's perspective, were prohibited from turning our weapons against them. Incredible, incredible idea. And that's why we did have the weapons. And we're not going with the Ibn Ezra who says that we were feeble and incapable and too docile and feeble. Too weak, too not confident, too incapable. No, we were very capable, let's assume. But we are prohibited from doing anything negative towards the Egyptians? And therefore, the right thing for us to do was to not turn our weapons against them. Incredible idea, but let's just put a little pin in that because he goes a little further. Now, this is a little bit of a piece you got to follow. It's a little bit, there's a few moving parts here. So listen carefully. The sea split. Sea split. Jews walked amidst walls of water. They walked on the on the dry path. That's what happened. That that was the resolution of this standoff. Now we always define what happened to the water as the sea split, kriya the 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 waters tore apart and they split. In Psalms, there's a different description, different verb that is associated with what happened. Hayam the sea ra saw the sea saw and it fled. The way Psalms describes what happened, the sea saw, the sea, the sea of reeds saw something, and it fled. It ran away, and some of the water ran in this direction, and some ran in the other direction, and there was a walkable path between those walls of water. The sea saw and it fled. Now what did the sea with an A see with an E? What did the sea see that made it flee? This sounds like a Dr. Seuss. What did the sea see that made it flee? Says the Midrash, something incredible. What did it see? It saw the bones of Joseph. It saw the bones of Joseph. We know Moshe went and he got the bones of Joseph. And he took it with them. And when the sea saw the bones of Joseph, it fled. Now, why did the sea flee? It fled because of Joseph. Joseph, when he was propositioned by his master's wife, by Mrs. Potiphar, and she divested him of his garments— what did he do? Vayanas, and he fled. Vayetzechutza, and he went outside. In the merit of Joseph fleeing from his master's wife, the sea fled from the Jews who were carrying the bones of Joseph. Hayam ra'av vayanas, the sea saw and fled. What did it see? It saw the bones of Joseph. Why? Because Vayanas, because Joseph fled, and he went outside. So this is a very nice idea the Midrash is telling us that the merit of Joseph, that is what earned us the right to be able to walk amidst the walls of water. But it goes even deeper. This is why I told you to listen carefully. The sea saw and fled. It saw the bones of Joseph And it fled. And it saw specifically the fact that Joseph fled when his master's wife grabbed his garments and disrobed him. He fled outside. And what happened then? He looked supremely guilty. Why did he flee outside? Isn't there a better solution? This is the Ramban's question. Wait a minute. Genesis chapter 38. Joseph is working for Potiphar, and his master's wife, Mrs. Potiphar, she really wants to be with Joseph, and Joseph knows it's inappropriate. And she is seducing him in all manners of seduction, and he is resisting. And then one day she pulls off his garments. And she has his garments. And what does Joseph do? He runs outside. He is, quite literally, now exposed. Why does he do that? Isn't there a better solution? Joseph is a man. Joseph is the son of Jacob. We know that this family was very physically gifted. His master's wife, God bless her, she's not going to overpower Joseph. So why does Joseph just grab back his garments and re-garb himself and not run out looking like the guilty party and endangering himself and potentially ending up arrested, which is what he did, and almost executed, which is what almost happened? There's a better solution, Ramban asks. He could overpower her and grab his garments back. That's question. And his answer is quite counterintuitive. He says it's not appropriate. It is not befitting someone who was welcomed into the house of Potiphar to physically and violently overpower his master's wife. And therefore it's better for Joseph to endanger himself, to flee outside. That is a preferable outcome. Than to physically overcome and muscle and, and bullies essentially, and use his physical physical brute force to overpower his master's wife, and that's why he went outside, notwithstanding the entailed danger. Says so that stops over. This is the clever bit. The seesaw and it split. It didn't split. It fled. Well, what did it see? It saw the bones of Joseph. And it fled. The Jewish people, they had an easier solution. The sea didn't need to split. The sea didn't need to flee. The Jews were armed. They had weapons. They could have turned their weapons against the Egyptians. Why did the sea flee? Why did it split? It's because of Joseph. There's a deeper meaning here to the Midrash's connection between the episode of Joseph fleeing and the sea fleeing. Joseph showed us how is proper behavior, what's the proper decorum in such an instance. You have a master. The proper derach heretz, the proper way to behave in such an instance is not to use physical force to get what you want. It's better to flee outside, even though it's going to be dangerous. By that same logic, the Jewish people said it's, it's not appropriate for us to turn our weapons against the Egyptians. And therefore, the sea had no choice but to split, but to flee, because the other option was inappropriate. So it's not just the merit of Joseph earned us the right to have the sea flee. The same logic of Joseph fleeing mandated that the only possible outcome can be that the sea flees. For the precise reason as to why Joseph fled and did not fight, The Jews must not fight, and the sea must flee. This is the Ksav Sofer's genius response to this question of the Ibn Ezra. The Jews were armed, and we're assuming that they are capable and competent. So why didn't they fight? They didn't fight because it was inappropriate for them to fight. To physically and violently free themselves of their oppressors, that is not appropriate. Why? Because they were your hosts. And you owe them a debt of gratitude. They hosted you in your time of need. When you were needy, they took you in. Now, with, uh, with friends like this, who needs enemies, right? We would have much preferred avoiding their hospitality. This is hospitality? I think this is an incredible example of the Torah molding us and forming us and giving us lessons in sensitivity in a way that we would not typically expect. A, we're told that we must show eternal appreciation and gratitude to the Egyptians. Why? Because we were visitors, foreigners in their land, and we're never allowed to discriminate against them. And yes, they were the worst hosts ever. And what they did to to us and to the Jewish babies is totally unconscionable. But nevertheless, the Torah is training us that we must show gratitude. In a way similar to what happened with the first three of the plagues. The verse tells us that the first three plagues, Moshe was told to strike the land and, and the water respectively. But he sends Aaron. He outsources it to Aaron. And the reason why is because, well, Moshe, you benefited from the land. When you killed the Egyptian on day one of your excursion, you buried him in the sand. And therefore, it's not appropriate for you to strike the sand. Now, how much did the sand really protect him, right? You know, the next day he was arrested for that crime anyhow. And Moshe, you, you were floating on the water in that makeshift little art box for 15 minutes before the princess, Pharaoh's daughter, picked you up. Therefore, it's not appropriate for you to strike the water. Send Aaron instead. So that's one lesson, the incredible sensitivity that we have in appreciation for things that are not necessarily in their totality. You know, in aggregate, you wouldn't say this is a good thing that has done good things for you. But if there's even a scintilla, a smidgen, an inkling of goodness that you received from a given thing or entity or nation or person. You have to be very aware of that, cognizant of that, and behave accordingly. Moreover, this goes so far, if you have a debt of gratitude towards a given thing, even if your life is in danger, like Joseph, his life is in danger. The commentaries note that Egypt wasn't known for its uh, rights of uh, the incarcerated. Joseph could have been executed for this libelous claim against him. You would imagine to save your life, maybe you could violate some of the rules. Maybe the ends would justify the means in that instance. Maybe, yeah, we can't really turn our weapons against the Egyptians, but what are we supposed to do now? We're going to die. There's no other choice. They have very violent intentions. Maybe in this case it will be okay. What does the Torah tell us? The ends do not justify the means. The ways of Torah are always pleasant. If you're doing something that's not pleasant, if there's something wrong with what you're doing, It's not the ways of the Torah. And if for no one, not the Jews, not Moshe, and not God, says to use your weapons against the Egyptians. And the more I was thinking about this, the more I realized that this is a pattern that we see again and again and again in the stories of the Torah. Even when there is such an important need, the whole nation is hanging in a balance. The future of the Jewish people is in peril. What will be with this grand experiment of the Jewish nation? Will we endure? Even in instances like that, the ends do not justify the means. You recall at the beginning of Exodus, Moshe is the shepherd working for Jethro and Midian. He's been there for decades. And God appears to him in the burning bush, chapter 3 of Exodus. And God instructs Moshe, go save the Jewish people. And Moshe goes, right? 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 Well, yes, but a lot of things happen between Moshe being instructed by God, commissioned by God, when this idea was first proposed by God, until Moshe actually went. The whole chapter 3 and much of chapter, chapter 4 happened in the interim. Why? Because Moshe says, well, I'm not worthy. Pharaoh won't believe me. What name of God should I say? The Jews won't believe me. I have a speech impediment. I'm not worthy. The Jews are not worthy. Moshe launches objection after objection, resisting this mission. And finally, he tells God, send someone else. Who was he referring to? Send Aaron. Moshe has an older brother. And what's going to be when Moshe prances into Egypt? I'm here to save the Jewish people. Aaron is the older brother. He's going to feel a little miffed. And then Moshe says, well, send Aaron instead. And Rashi tells us that all the objections were all excuses. The real objection, the real reason why Moshe did not want to take on this mission? It's because he was worried that Aaron would be embarrassed or ashamed or feel envious of Moshe's promotion. I've heard from some of my um, older brothers how hard it is uh, to see uh, your younger brother tower over you. That's a joke. Dominate you. It's also a joke. But it's tough. It's tough. Your younger brother, the one that used to bully and used to... to change their diapers and feed them, and suddenly they're eclipsing you? They're leapfrogging you? You're Aaron. You've been in Egypt the whole time. Moshe shows up, and suddenly he's the, he's the boss. He's in charge. Now, If you think about it, the nation is suffering. They're being tortured. They're experiencing tremendous pain. And God says, it's time to save them. What would we do? How would we respond in such an instance? The nation's in peril. Let's quickly march to Egypt. And Moshe's worried about Aaron's feelings. Seems kind of inappropriate. The nation is being tortured, and you're dealing with such trivialities? Moshe, what are you talking about? Aaron's feelings? That's what we're worried about here? (laughs) Aaron's feelings? Really? The whole nation's suffering? And that's what you're worried about? Now, to compound the matter, what does God respond? This is chapter 4, verse 14 of Exodus. God gets angry at Moshe. Be Moshe. God gets angry at Moshe. Now, if we were to guess what the end of the verse is, we would say, he gets angry at Moshe. He says, why are you dealing with such small pettiness? Aaron's feelings? That's what you're worried about right now? When the nation is suffering so mightily? That's what we would imagine God's continuation would would be. But God says something else. God says, Aaron? Don't you know Aaron? When he will see you, and he will see the important post that you have... And he'll see your stature rising above his. He's going to be happy in his heart. Aaron is not going to be miffed, embarrassed, envious, ashamed that you're going to leapfrog him. Aaron will be happy in his heart. You know, sometimes when your friend gets a promotion, you're like, oh, I'm so happy for you. But in your heart, like, ah, oh, why not me? Ah, oh, I wish he fails. Oh. that's what sometimes the way we, we feel, we could externally project happiness. I'm so happy for you. Oh, congratulations. But to be happy in your heart, you really have to be a special person. And the verse tells us that God testifies, Aaron will be glad in his heart. The only person that we know of, regarding whom the Almighty testifies, has no envy. The only person is Aaron. He will be glad in his heart. And that's why God gets angry at Moshe. Now, we, we question Moshe. Moshe, I understand, why are you worried about Aaron's feelings when the nation is on the verge of destruction? We questioned Moshe's calculation. It's not appropriate to worry about such trivialities like Aaron's feelings when the nation and their future is at stake. But that's not why God gets angry at Moshe. He only gets angry at Moshe because the reality is that Aaron will be glad in his heart. Now, what would be if Aaron was like everyone else? that it would be a little bit envious that Moshe's calculation was 100% correct. It would be appropriate to abort the mission if the mission demands that Aaron's feelings get trampled upon. The only criticism of Moshe, the only reason why God gets angry at Moshe, is because he got the reality on the ground wrong. Aaron, in fact, is not envious but had aaron been like everyone else gets a little envious when his younger brother supplants him or overcomes him or leapfrogs him then it would be appropriate to discard the mission what about the jewish people again we see that even if the entire nation's future is in balance just as we don't turn the weapons against the egyptians And Joseph does not physically overcome his master's wife. Even if the whole future is in peril, the Torah is telling us that we cannot do things that are problematic, things that are not pleasant. The way of the Torah is pleasant. If the way demands that you override Aaron and you hurt his feelings, that's not pleasant, and therefore it's not the way of the Torah. You cannot save the nation if the only way to do it, the only path forward, is one that tramples over your brother's feelings. This is an incredible lesson in sensitivity. After Moshe is reassured that Aaron will be glad in his heart, he begins the mission to go save the Jews. But he makes one pit stop He stops along the way. Where does he stop? Chapter 4, verse 18. He goes to Jethro. And he says, Jethro, um, I want to go to Egypt. I want to go inspect the well-being of my brethren there. Would that be okay? And Jethro, in his magnanimity, says, yeah, sure, go. go. Go with peace. It's a pretty innocuous verse, but you look at Rashi. Rashi says something fascinating. Moshe and Jethro had an arrangement. They had an agreement that stipulated that Moshe will not leave without Jethro's permission. And now God commissions Moshe to go save the Jewish people. Aaron has no problem with it. He'll be glad in his heart. And Moshe says, wait a minute. I have to make one more stop to get permission from my Pagan father, O Lord Jethro. Now, Jethro gave his blessing to this mission. But what would have happened had Jethro said, actually, I don't approve? Implied from the verse is that Moshe would have told God, I'm sorry, the Jewish people, they're suffering. Aaron wouldn't mind. doesn't matter. I'm staying here. I'm not going to violate my oath to Jethro, to my father-in-law, even if it means that the whole Jewish people don't have a savior. Now again, if we just saw this, we would say Moshe made a mistake. I don't understand. God tells you to do something, and Jethro in the event in the in the counterfactual example where Jethro in, stopped this mission from happening. In that world, Moshe would have stayed put. And what would be with the mission of the, Jewish, of the Jewish people? We would think that Moshe made a mistake. The Midrash says otherwise. The verse in Psalms 24 says, Who will ascend the mountain of God? And who will stand up in his holy place? What are the criteria for ascending the mountain of God? Nikit you have to have clean hands, integrity. Ubar Levav, and a wholesome heart, and does not take the Almighty's name in vain, and does not violate their oaths. Says the Midrash, all these four characteristics were found in Moshe. And that's why Moshe was able to ascend the mountain of God and receive the Torah. And it gives examples to all these four things. Moshe did not violate his oath when he went down to Egypt. He first stopped, made a pit stop with Jethro because he had made an oath, because he had promised to not leave without his permission. So what we would accuse Moshe of making a mistake, how can you deal with such Trivialities when the nation's future is in peril. Not only did should not make a mistake, that was his qualifications. Those, these are his credentials that enable him to ascend the mountain of God. And again, the nation is hanging on a thread. The future of the Jewish experiment is at risk. And you're worried about a small oath that you made to your father-in-law? God says to go. And you say, I want to consult with Jethro? Again, we see this principle to save the Jewish people, to alter the course of human history. You cannot do it. If it demands that you take a path, that's not pleasant. If you have to violate your oath to Jethro, if you have to trample over the feelings of Aaron, if you have to turn your weapons against the Egyptians, if you have to forcefully overpower your master's wife, That's not the pleasant way. And the ways of the Torah are all pleasant, and thus, if it's not pleasant, you know it's not the way of the Torah. But there's such an important, let's make an exception here. No, there's no exceptions. There's no exceptions. It's never appropriate. It's an incredible idea. It's never appropriate for us to violate the ways of the Torah, the ways of pleasantness. Not only that, our understanding is that even if you were to do it, it would not succeed, because that's not the way of the Torah. You're not going to save the Jewish people by going against the way of the Torah. But what will be? What will be? That's the Almighty's problem, not mine. There are more examples to this phenomenon. In chapter 27 of Genesis the Jewish people were again at risk. Isaac was old and he had a preference for Esav. And he tells Esav, I want to give you a blessing, a blessing that is rooted in prophecy, guaranteed to be fulfilled. But the way you do it is you have to bring me something. So go out, catch some game Take your weapons and make me delicacies and you bring it and I'll eat it. And then I will have the proper frame of mind to be able to bless you before I die. Had Esav received those blessings, it would have been total catastrophe for Jacob and his descendants. Now we know the story. Rebecca overhears it and she summons Jacob and uh, we have to stop this she understands of course prophetically that jacob is the right one not esau jacob is going to be the one who's going to be the standard bearer the torch bearer of the abrahamic mission and she tells him we're going to do the heist of the century nay the heist of the millennium you're going to masquerade as esau you're going to impersonate esau your dad of course you remember is blind And I'm going to make the special delicacies, and you're going to say, I'm Aesav, here are the delicacies, and you're going to receive those blessings. It's a crazy plan, but it works. Now, in verse 9 of chapter 27, there is a, a, a nuance that, of course, we would read the verse, and we would miss it 100 times out of 100. But Rashi misses no nuances, Rebecca tells Jacob Go to the sheep, go to the flock, and take for me two goats. Two goats. And I'll make the the delicacies the way your father likes it. So Rashi notices there's a very small word, the word Li meaning for me. It seems to be a bit superfluous in the verse. The verse could have said, well, go to the flock and take two goats. That's not what it says. Go to the flock and take for me, Lee for me, two goats. Why does this word appear in the verse? So Rashi tells us, lee for me, it is mine. It's not your father's. It's mine. Because when Isaac and Rebecca married, part of the terms of their matrimonial agreement was that every day Rebecca has the rights to two goats and therefore we're not stealing. Again, implied from this, what would have happened in the counterfactual world where Rebecca was not deserving of those animals by right? If you had to steal just a little bit to have the the path paved for the future of the Jewish nation. It's just a small, you're stealing from your husband after all. It's not like the worst kind of theft in the world but evidently this whole heist would not be possible if the only way to do it if the only path to get there is one that demands a little bit of chicanery and again this you have to recall this is a blessing that is done via prophecy and it's guaranteed to be fulfilled and if asher receives it the whole future of the jewish nation is in peril And again, she she knows prophetically that it cannot be like that. The future of the Jewish people hangs on the balance. It is critical for the state of the Jewish nation and the Abrahamic legacy that we carry for this blessing to go to Jacob. And again, if the only way to do it is to steal just a little bit from your husband, it's not the pleasant path and it is Discarded. And finally, the next example of this principle, also in the book of Genesis, Judah has two sons. Each are married to this woman, Tamar, and they both die. And Judah assumes that Tamar is trouble. So he says, Well, the third son, I will get to you. You you go home and you stay with your family, and we'll send you a postcard when he's old enough so you can marry him. And Shela, the third son, matures, and Tamar receives no postcard, and she comes up with a very implausible plan to bear a child from Judah himself. Our sages tell us that Tamar had a prophetic vision of the fact that she was destined to bear a child from the line of Judah. And that's why she was so desperate to have a child from him. So we know the story. She impersonates a prostitute and she seduces Judah. And he doesn't know who she is. And she doesn't, he doesn't have immediate payment. So he gives her the identifying marks, his, his staff, his signet ring. Judah tries to find this uh, mysterious woman, and he cannot find her. And Tamar is pregnant with twins. These twins are very important. We know these are the forbearers of David and Solomon and the whole line of David. And, of course, Messiah. And even before Messiah, Hillel and all of Hillel's descendants, Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Shimon, Gamliel, etc., Rabbi Judah the prince all that comes from this very unusual union now she's arrested and she's put on trial and her crime is that she is technically still married to the family of judah and the the kind of the details of that are are somewhat nuanced but She is, even though her husband is dead, but because she must still resolve her relationship with this family because she bore no children, so that kind of the Leverite marriage idea, she's put on trial. And Judah is the judge. And the mirror tells us that the spectators to this court case were Jacob and Isaac And she knows that she has the damning evidence to, to say that actually Judah's the dead. And what does she do? She doesn't release that she doesn't release that information. She has exculpating evidence and she does she does not release it. She sends a message. Here's the signal ring and the staff. Do you know perhaps who's the bearer, who's the owner of these items? Says the Talmud, it's better to be thrown in a fiery furnace than to publicly embarrass someone, to whiten someone's face publicly, to ashamed someone publicly, to have the corpuscles of their face flush red and then go white as a cadaver. It's better to die. And we learned that from Tamar. She was willing to die to not embarrass Judah. But who would she take with her? Her twins and any hope for Messiah. And she put all that on the line to not embarrass Judah. You have Messiah, King David, Solomon. Our whole future comes from this family. It's implied that she knew that as well. Nevertheless, she's not going to take a path that's not pleasant to achieve those ends. She's willing to forfeit her own life, the life of her twin babies, and the future of Messiah and David and Solomon and Drew the prince, all of that, to not take the unpleasant path. Again, we see this principle. You want to accomplish great things. You want to be an important cog in this engine that's a Jewish nation. You want to save the nation. You want The nation's in danger. Why they're in danger? Either because of Jacob losing out on the blessings to Esav, Tamar losing her life and her children and her future, Moshe, I'm not going to come save the Jewish people because of Aaron, trampling over Aaron, because of the, the oath that I made to Jethro. Joseph forfeiting everything to not do something which is inappropriate, which is insensitive, which is, in, which is not the right thing to do to your master's wife. The Jewish people back up against the wall after the exodus on our way to Sinai, on our way to Canaan, finally fulfilling the dream that's been hundreds of years in the making. None of them are willing to do something which we would think is relatively trivial. They don't do that, not to save their lives, not to save the nation, not to save Messiah, none of that. Our instinct is to say they're all wrong. You could do something a little bit, massage the numbers. It's a price you should be willing to pay. There's the greater good. It's not really so bad. Is it so, so bad? The ways of the Torah are pleasant. Can it just be it's only a little bit bad? It's a very minor crime. It has to be pleasant. That's the way of the Torah. And if it's not pleasant... It's not the ways of the Torah. And such a path is not going to bring you to good places. And we see this lesson again and again. We would make that calculation. Moshe says that we're wrong and God agrees with him. We would think, well, you know, Aaron, to trample over him a little bit, that's a price you'd be willing to pay. To violate your oath with Jethro? After all, Jethro, my, my goodness, he's not really such a hero. He's not even one of us, and he's—he—he he was a a minister, a priest for the for the pagans. He, he really did a lot of pagan stuff. Maybe someone like that, we could eh, make an exception. The, the Egyptians, what they what they do to our people, terrible things. Maybe it's okay if we don't treat them with such reverence. All this is incorrect. God agrees with Moshe. And the Torah shows us again and again, it's not worth it. You cannot embarrass Aaron. You cannot violate the terms of your deal with Jethro. You cannot publicly ashamed Judah to extirpate yourself. Stealing a few animals from Isaac. Isaac, my goodness, he's my husband. You cannot do that, even if the future of the nation... And thereby, the grand mission of Abraham is in peril. You cannot overpower Mrs. Potiphar, even if it means that you will likely be executed. You cannot turn your weapons against the nation that you must have some degree of gratitude towards. My grandfather, a blessed memory, used to say that we have a tradition. We have a tradition. If you can bring about the salvation of the entire nation, and there's only one slight inappropriate thing that you need to do to get there, it only tramples over one person. It's only slight, 99% pleasant, proper, appropriate. It's only 1% corrupt. But you have the ability to flick a switch, one click. And you can usher in Messiah. You can usher in world peace. Just one person needs to be ashamed. Just one sensitivity needs to be ignored. Our tradition is that we do not do it. I think this is an incredible idea that we see throughout the Torah. And it's one that really we don't connect with. Like we feel this is wrong. And I think the reason why we feel like it's wrong, it's really rooted in our lack of 100% faith. We believe that the Almighty is really in charge. Erroneously, we have the sense that we have a say in the matter. But the truth is, the Almighty is 100% in charge. And we are required to act, but only in a very small band, so to speak, of circumstances. Only when it's completely conforming to the pleasant ways of the Torah. We know that the Almighty can do whatever He wants. So the state of the world, the way it is, it's, it's the Almighty's decision. And when we succeed and we manipulate, we move the the needle forward, it's not really us. The Almighty, in his benevolence, in his kindness, he says, I'm going to outsource some of my agenda to you. But when this entails us trampling over others and doing things that are against the will of the Almighty, then we do nothing. Not because the ends will not be reached, but because in such an instance... We know that the Almighty does not want us to behave, to act, to take charge, and to take that faulty path. And what will be with the result? The Almighty has his ways. He will ensure that the result will be achieved. The Jewish people, if you think about their state, when they're surrounded by the Egyptians, they are convinced that they will all die then and there. Are there insufficient graves in Egypt? you got to bring us here to die? And they don't turn their weapons against the Egyptians. But what happens? The nation does not die. And something that none of us could have even foreseen, the Almighty says, I'm going to step in, and the sea will split, the sea will flee. The Almighty is completely competent. He doesn't need us at all. And when things are wrong and when it's inappropriate for us to act, we stand the sidelines. To me, this was an incredible idea, an sh- idea that shifts our perspective. It's a, it's a paradigm shift. The Almighty is in charge. And when we effectuate change, it's not really us that are doing it. The Almighty is allowing us to do something that He wants to get done. But if it's not pleasant, if it's inappropriate, if there's some even minor thing that's not correct, we stand down and we withhold from acting. This is, I think, some examples of of the reshaping, remolding, reframing that the Torah is trying to do to us. Develop sensitivity. Show gratitude even to the Egyptians. It's so hard for us to even fathom that the Egyptians are worthy of any gratitude. And even that small amount of gratitude, that will be enough to stop us in our tracks, to not engage in violence their way. And then we see that pattern again and again. The Torah is really there, as we have said at the beginning, there to make us better people. More sensitive people. People who are more noticing. We, 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 we become more present. That's the objective of the Torah, to make us more pleasant. Derachel, Darche, noam, her ways, are ways of pleasantness. I hope you enjoyed this. Send me your questions, your comments, and your feedback to rabbiwalby at gmail.com. It's a total pleasure to discuss Torah with you. From the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. And again, the email just says rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. As I said at the beginning, we're running our annual campaign at givetorch.org. Every donation is doubled. Please visit givetorch.org and support the incredible work of Torch and the Torch Center and all the amazing. Torch Podcasts. Support us. Raise the torch in 2023. GiveTorch.org.